scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. If you're following in the Pew Bible, it's page 1018. Luke 9, 57 through 62. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. What a great passage of Scripture. I want you to think about that just for a few moments. Let's focus our attention upon what Jesus had to say. I don't know about you, but there are several passages of Scripture that seem to be somewhat of a puzzle for me. I, I just have difficulty understanding them. The illustration of that is what we're talking about in the passage that was just read for you. Three men came to Jesus. Three men told him they were willing to follow him. He came to Jesus, the first one, and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now, if you remember, they were out on the, somewhere, wherever they were following Jesus, out in the country. And he was there already, but now let me just, I'll just go with you wherever you go. Was Jesus kind to him when he made this statement? The foxes have dens, but the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to go. Or think about the second one. Another answer, Jesus, and, and, and when Jesus asked him to follow me, and, and, and then he said to him, let, let me uh, first go and bury my father. Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go preach the kingdom of God. The third one said, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go, but let me first go and bid farewell to those in my household. Now those three verses and Jesus' response to them seems difficult for me. Seems difficult way to answer that and a way to deal with the problems that he is facing at that particular time. Leaves me a little cold, actually, to say that. What did Jesus mean when that first man came to him and said, said I'll follow you wherever you go? What did he mean when he explained that the animals have places to go and the 
birds there have nests, but uh, he does not have a place to live. And if that's not a put down, if that's not a discouragement, a turn off, I don't know what you'd call it. Oh, I know what's meant. I know that he's saying, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. I, I know he's saying in certain situations, it's going to be difficult to follow me. But why did he say it that way? And why is that recorded for us to read today? Another thing Jesus said to this crew is that no man, having put his hand to the plow and looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. What's he saying? Now, I grew up on a farm in northwest Arkansas. And I can tell you this. I, I, I know that you could never plow a straight furrow while you're looking back over your shoulder. Just can't do it. You have to set your mind on the goal that's ahead of you. And you are willing to plow toward that goal or you're not going to plow a straight furrow. I know that as well as you do. We can understand what Jesus is saying in verse 62. No devoted servant of God can constantly look back on his previous life to his becoming a Christian. I've known Christians, and I would imagine you, do, you have too, who tell you about the things that they did before they became Christians what a joyous time it was and how much fun they had. And, and the, the thinking about going back to that kind of life, you can't serve God while you look back over your shoulder. That's true. That's what, what Jesus is saying. That's the real key to discipleship. That's the real key to being a Christian. That's commitment. We want to know what commitment is. We want to know how committed you are to being a Christian, to living for Christ. He was saying to those people, look, you're going to have to give up an awful lot in order to follow Jesus and be what he wants you to be. You're going to have to be committed to the cause of Christ and must be wholehearted and undivided in your total surrender to Jesus Christ the Lord. Jesus touched on it again in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24 when he said, no man can serve two masters for he, either he'll hate the one and love the other or else he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Also in verse 33 of the same chapter, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's a commitment. That's what he's asking of us is a commitment. That's what he's talking about in all these passages. We must be committed to Jesus Christ. You know, if we aren't interested in that, in our modern times, we want to play it loose. We want to just hold back a little bit for later. We want all the benefits without, without paying the price. But it can't be that way. You know, it, it, that's what Jesus is saying. He's telling them no, in no uncertain turn that you're going to be a follower of me 
if you're going to be a follower of me, you're going to have to do it committed totally, completely to the cause. There's going to have to be a wholehearted, complete surrender. There's another passage in 1 Kings chapter 19. That's one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. It's a puzzling passage that requires some study. It begins, first of all, with Elijah, one of the prophets, one of the followers of God, near the end of his life, God gave him three commandments. He said, I want you to go to Syria and anoint a king. I want you to go to Samaria and anoint a king. And I want you to go to Elisha and make him your follower. We're told that he did that same thing. He went to Syria. He went to Samaria and he appointed kings and he came to Elisha. Elisha was plowing in the field that had 12 yoke of oxen in it and Elisha was plowing there and Elijah made his way to Elisha, took the mantle off his shoulders and put it on the shoulders of Elisha and turned and went his way, never saying a word. Now that was a sign. That was a signal for Elisha that he was to be the successor of Elijah. Now it seems to me there's several things that of interest about this event that is exciting to me. Number one, God selected a busy man. Elisha was plowing. Elisha was working. You see, when, job ha- when God has a job to be done, he selects a busy man. God uses busy men. The devil uses idle men. It always has been that way. You want something done, find somebody who's actively involved in doing something already. And they'll get the job done. If you want something put off for a while and postponed or procrastinated, find somebody who's not doing anything. And he'll find a way out of doing that job also. It's so impressive to me that God selected a busy man to do the job that was at hand. And then secondly, it's impressive to me that he selected an humble man. Now I want you to think about something for a moment. Elisha was plowing with a yoke of oxen in a field in which there were 12 yoke of oxen. Now when I was on that farm in northwest Arkansas, if you had hired hands in the, in the field plowing, you had better plow the first goat. You better lead the way. Elisha didn't do that. Elisha was that humble man, and he went to, when he was plowing, he plowed as on the 12th yoke of oxen. He was the last of the one. He was not be, being the uh, lead plow. You need to be setting the pace, you need to be the leader. But that wasn't Elisha. He was an humble man. He was willing to take the last place. He was willing to plow that 12th yoke of oxen. 
He's willing to take the last row. I, I, I like that kind of man. He's not the kind of man to put himself forward. He's an humble servant. He's not the kind of man that would do, try to lead the passage, but he's an humble servant of the Lord. And he's a great man in that respect. And then thirdly, did you notice that Elisha killed the oxen and burned the plow? He ran after Elijah and he said, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye. And Elijah said, you do whatever you want to do. And Elisha ran back home, said goodbye to his family. And then he did something that was difficult to understand at first. He killed the oxen and he burned the plow. You may think that he was having a farewell party for his friends. So he is getting all the steaks and all the food that he could, but that's not it. You may think that, that, okay, the feast was for his household. You know, he was going to have all of his friends and everybody come in, but that wasn't it either. It wasn't just because he wanted to leave some provisions for his family when he's gone. Wasn't that way either. You see, he not only killed the oxen, but he burned the plow. Plows were nothing but a crooked stick. There was no, no metal involved in them about that time. So he built a fire with the crooked sticks. And he killed the oxen. Could it have been that Elisha at that time was offering a sacrifice to God? Could it have been at this time an oxen or a bullock since they were the sin offering under the Old Testament? Could it have been that this humble man was actually saying, now look, I'm, I'm not really worthy of this position. I'm a sinner. I stand before you as a sinner condemned. Forgive me of that sin. And just perhaps he offered the oxen as sacrifice for sin. Do we wonder if we like Elisha? No, he's a great man. Now I think we can even see something else about this. I think we can see the importance of planning ahead. Elisha probably knew that preaching wasn't going to be, wasn't going to go smoothly all the time. It doesn't. I think Elisha probably knew that one of the most important problems he, is, he was going to face was discouragement. Remember old Jeremiah in the Old Testament? He's another one of my favorite people of the Old Testament. I love the passages we can find about Jeremiah. He's known as the weeping prophet. He wept because he loved the people to whom he preached. He also saw that those people were not just going to do as he wanted and as God taught them. Surely you're aware that the most often discouragement is caused by people. People are going to let you down. They're going to not going to live like they should. They're not always going to listen to what you say. Jeremiah felt that it had to be true. He said, oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place for travelers. 
Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 2. If he could just get out into the desert and just have a motel company, he'd be, he'd be all right. And then in Jeremiah 20 and verse 9, he says, but then the word of God is in my heart like a burning fire. You see, with that burning fire in his bones, even the motel business didn't look attractive. The only thing he could do was preach. That's what preaching's all about. There's going to be discouragement, but it can be dealt with. Elisha knew that times would come when he was going to be discouraged in preaching and being a prophet of God, but he is not going to be able to say, well, getting a little rough here. I'll just go home and plow for a while. He can't do that. He killed the oxen. He burned the plow. You see, he burned the bridges behind him, as we would say. There's no opportunity for him to go back. There's no temptation behind him saying, Elijah, just come back and plow with the other 11 oxen and everything will be all right. That's not going to be. Elisha was the kind of man who made preparation long before. And when he understood that God had inspired the call of Elisha to take Elijah's place, he did everything he could to make sure that he was going to fulfill the task. And there's another phrase concerning Jesus found in Luke chapter 9 and verse 52 that reminds more of what Elisha did. We're told Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus was going to Jerusalem for the last time. He knew what many of his disciples would say. They would say, Lord, they're lying in wait for you at Jerusalem. You're going to have a difficult time in Jerusalem. Just don't go. But he steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem. He was determined to go. I think Elisha, in this particular story, was doing the same thing. I think he had the, was given the task, and he, had, he could say in his heart, I have a job to do, and nothing or no one else is going to keep me away from doing that job. Now, I don't, I, I, let me tell you something. If you and I don't have that kind of commitment, we are never going to heaven. If we don't have that same kind of commitment toward Jesus Christ and the, with the idea of being totally and wholeheartedly surrendered to Jesus, we're not going to heaven. We have so many today who will give all kinds of excuses, but we're talking about commitment. We're talking about the need for every one of us being totally committed to Jesus Christ. I have an idea that there's more oxen that we need to kill. We need to kill our pet sins. You know, the writer of the Hebrews has given us a beautiful chapter, the 11th chapter, talking about examples of faith. And he's given us what we call the honor roll of the faithful. The writer gave us the list of people who by faith and obedience received God's blessing. 
By faith, they lived through difficult times in serving God. Now in chapter 12 and verse 1, he says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, let's be careful. You have a besetting sin. I don't know what it is. But what it is, it really isn't important. You have a besetting sin, and I have a besetting sin. For those to whom the Hebrew letter was written, most likely had uh, a besetting sin. Most likely for them is unbelief. That's the sin or weakness that the devil or Satan most likely enjoys. That's what he wants. You see, you and I have that area. I think an area that's real. Because we committed ourselves wholeheartedly, unreservedly to Jesus Christ and now there is a limit as to how far Satan can go. The devil can only go so far, no further. The length or distance he can go is determined by the commitment we have to Jesus Christ. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Analyze it for a moment. How, how, how deeply committed are you to Jesus Christ? And, and with that commitment, what does it really mean? How far is it into your life that the devil can go? Well, I want you to understand something. We can often hold to one sin and the devil is, uh, we're committed to Jesus Christ all except that one sin, but the devil can come in as far as that sin is. We're not going to surrender that sin to, to Jesus. I don't know what the sin could be for you. It could be lying. It could be cheating in business. It could be gossiping. It could be improper language or whatever. The fact is that it is there makes a difference and that fact that it is keeping us from much being totally committed to Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 21 verse 27 the book of Revelation says but there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. If I understand the Bible clearly, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 tells men that unrighteousness cannot enter the kingdom of God. That if I'm guilty of a pet sin or any sin that's unforgiven, I can't go to heaven. That's what the Bible says. You can be sure of one thing, the devil knows what that pet sin is. He knows where you can get where he can get at it the most quickly and he knows how, that how far he can go with that pet sin. It's going to use that stranglehold hold on your soul if he can. He wants you to be less than totally committed. The devil does. If he can just get you to say, oh, that's fine to, to, be, to go to worship. Fine to go to church. It's fine for you to obey the gospel. Just don't get involved. Just don't give yourself all the way. That's what the devil says. Jesus is telling those in Luke chapter 9, if you're not willing to commit yourself totally 
to Jesus. Wholeheartedly to Jesus. Don't, just don't follow him. In Luke 14, he's telling you to count the cost. You know better. Well, you know what it's going to cost you to be a Christian. It's going to cost you something. Anything worthwhile does, doesn't it? Being a Christian costs something, and some people are just not willing to pay the price. Are we committed? Do we really need to kill the auction, oxen of pet sins? Or maybe just excuses. Secondly, we need to kill that oxen of excuses. I can think of a couple of Old Testament passages that are extremely picturesque to me. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 4. The Bible says the lazy man will not plow because of winter. He'll beg during the harvest and have nothing. Now get, now, now, now get the picture of this. What Solomon's saying is here's a man who is a sluggard, a lazy man. A better name for that would be that he's a lazy man. It, it, it's in the springtime. It's going to be time for planting soon. He needs to prepare the ground and be ready when the proper times arrive. But he looks outside and says, Ooh, it's cold outside. You don't want me to catch my death of pneumonia. You, you, you don't want me to catch a cold. I can't do that today. It's, I can't plow. It's too cold. Then the time for planting comes and the field's not ready. No planting can be done. The time for harvest comes, and you know if you don't plant, you can't expect a harvest. He's been putting it off all this time. He was looking for ideal circumstances. He was looking for a time in which everything was just right, and it never came, and he's going to be begging for bread in the harvest. Notice another passage in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 26 and verse 13. The lazy man says there's a lion in the road, a fierce lion in the streets. Now, the lazy man who puts off everything that he knows he ought to do, he says, I can't go out and work today. There's a lion in the streets. Everybody else is going to work today. You know, and I know, there's no lion in the streets. Solomon, the wise man, is just telling us if you're looking for an excuse to get out of doing something, you can find one. You know, if you can't find one, you can met one. There's no lion in the streets. That's just keeping a slothful man at home, just keeping that sluggard from plowing his field. It's not too cold for anybody else to plow. But there is for this one man. You're look, when you're looking for an excuse, it doesn't really matter. When our hearts are not in a thing, we can find all kinds of excuses not to do it. I wonder sometimes just privately and to myself of the commitment that we have. Some of my brethren and sisters in Christ who are always so quick and so ready with all kinds of excuses for not doing the Lord's will, for not being involved in the program of the church. And I wonder, are we really committed? Are we totally committed? 
or are we like the sluggard and the slothful in Proverbs 20 and 26? Think about that for a moment. When you stand before Christ on the day of judgment, and that time's coming, a time when the books are going to be opened and all that are in the, in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, you are going to stand before Jesus. And the book will be opened and you're going to be judged according to those things that are written. When you stand before Jesus who died on the cross, who left heaven, who came to this earth, endured all indignities that man could heap upon him, endured all the abuses of men, how is he going to listen to your excuses? How is he going to do that? Now, Brother Gus Nichols, a faithful gospel preacher of the past, said an excuse is nothing but a lie wrapped in tissue paper. And he's right. Take off the pretty wrapping and it becomes totally meaningless. If you have a reason why you don't do more for the Lord, then you're saved. If you have a reason why you don't attend more worship assemblies, Sunday morning, Sunday night, or Wednesday night, then you're saved. If you have a reason why you don't reach more more, uh, others with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you're saved. If you don't have a reason in the world that you can offer for any of these things, when you stand before Christ, the crucified, with nail prints in his hand, the spear print in his side, I wonder, can you offer excuses that he would accept? Perhaps we ought to be killing the oxen of excuses too. One more thing, indifference. Thirdly, Perhaps we need to kill the oxen of indifference. By that I mean the attitude of not really caring that much. You see, it's a it's concern that really moves an individual. It's only when we really love the Lord and are willing to do what He asks, when we may show this by our obedience to Him, by our attendance, by our involvement in the work of the church, by doing these things, we convince the Lord that we love Him. How can we convince Him any other way? You couldn't convince the Lord that you love him while you're staying away from the place where he's worshipped. You cannot convince the Lord you love him while you're giving only 1% or 2% of your income. You cannot convince the Lord that you love him if you never speak to anyone else about him. Let me illustrate it another way. Do you think a young man could ever convince a young lady that he loved her if he only sees her, oh, maybe once a week. Oh, no, oh, she has an opportunity when she has uh, that opportunity. She invites him on Wednesday nights, but he doesn't really have time. You know, he's really just too tired. And besides that, he doesn't like to drive at night. Do you think he could convince her that he loved her? Or do you think that he could convince her if he never ever spends a penny to show her his love for her? Or if he never mentions her name among his friends? Nobody else knows that he even cares about her. Do you think he could really convince her that he loves her? 
I doubt seriously that he could. And yet we expect the Lord to believe that we love him when we do the same thing. And yet we expect the Lord to believe us, believe us and simply because we're not going to do it. Souls are in danger. You and I are not really doing anything about it. The question's why. Are we involved of the church or uh, when programs of the church are presented and we don't have 100% participation, we wonder why. A budget's presented and we don't reach it for a month or two months or three months and, and so we wonder why. I think I can tell you, you may not like it, but I think I can tell you it's indifference. It's because you don't really care. Now I recognize that there's a majority of, uh, of people in this congregation who do care, who are really committed, and I, I, I'm not talking to you. I, I, I'm not talking to those who are really giving, attending, and being involved in the programs of the church and are really committed 100%. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to those who are not totally committed. We need to kill the oxen of indifference. We need to face some facts. We need to care. We need to get the priorities in the right order. We need to decide that God and his kingdom and his work is surely coming first in our lives. And nothing else will be permitted to interfere with it. We need to understand that Jesus Christ must be number one. And everything else must be built around him. Sometimes we need to turn the list exactly around. We need to put the last first and the first last. We need to get so involved in the affairs of this life and the affairs of this world that we don't have time for the service of God. Elisha didn't want this to happen. I don't want this to happen in your life either. I'm begging you this morning to commit yourself like Elisha did. Unreservedly, 100% totally to Jesus Christ. Anything less than that is not acceptable to the Lord. Don't you want to become a Christian this morning? Don't you want to believe in him with all of your heart, that, that total commitment to him? Don't you want to repent of your sins? Turn away from them. Turn to Jesus Christ. And don't you want to make that confession of faith and be baptized in water for the remission of your sins. That's how we put our trust in Christ. That's how we put our hope in Him for eternity. If you don't want to, if you've been a Christian and you've not been faithful and you've allowed some of these things to enter your life, don't you want to come back to Him today? Don't you want to respond to the invitation to become a Christian right now while together we stand and sing?